Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 110 of Drinks with Tony and my conversation with Joseph DePrisco. Ladies, gentlemen, friends, I'm very against looting and rioting. Please don't do it. But if you see an easy grab on Timberlands, I'm a size 10 and a half. This is Joe DePrisco, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Joseph DePrisco. He's the author of Subway to California, The Pope of Brooklyn, Confessions of Brother Eli, and his latest novel, The Good Family Fitzgerald. How you doing, Joe? I am perfect talking to you. I'm in a great mood talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we try to do here. It's not a show. It's about putting people into great moods and feeling perfect for like 45 minutes. Well... I'm up for it, man. <laughs> I got to tell you, I mean, during the pandemic times, this is this is sometimes the part this is part of the day I only this is the only part of the day I could feel normal sometimes. Well, it's interesting cuz it's an apocalyptic era we live in, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, so what does apocalypse mean? It means uh, the root of the word is uncovering. So we're uncovering the reality uh, that is our true life. This is it, this, this isolation, this suffering, this, uh, and also the, it, it also gives us the opportunity to underscore the things we really care about. I mean, there are very few things under our control ever. We always had, we had the fiction, perhaps we could control anything on our lives. Okay, that's done. Uh, that was an illusion. And it also gives us the opportunity to remember the things that are really important. Right. Pretty simple, not to not to go pablum on it, but it, it, it's, that's the truth. Yeah. Like getting my hair cut. <laughs> I'm against that. <laughs> <laughs> I am opposed. <laughs> no, it does bring us, it does, it's done this thing where it's brought us down to our roots, almost to the point where we all, you know, we're not going in caves and like hunting for our food, <laughs> but it, it's kind of bringing us back to origins of such, I guess. That's that's pretty cool. I like that image. Yeah, we are. But you know, right? What do writers do naturally? They go into their caves. You yeah. know that. You know that. What the hard part for me is, I like to be irritated by humanity right <laughs> around me constantly. When I can't see their faces, then it's harder to be irritated. And then I go, I know he's sneering at me. I know that person's sneering at me. And then all of a sudden, everyone's sneering at me. And then I have a complex. And then I know I'm in the wrong. So. It's, it's just been a, it's been a whirlwind of a mess, you know. I was just reading something about Prince, you know, famous JW yeah. guy. And um, yeah. some of his biographer said, well, you know, Prince never liked anybody. He was, he was a loner. Was, he was destined to die alone. Uh, it was a dark reading. But uh, there, there's a way in which anger and uh, exceptionalism and is really the marker of a writer. If you can't get pissed off at something, if you can't be angry with somebody, then what do you stand for? Now, we don't need to talk about politics, but we might. But if we can't get, if we can't get angry at that stuff, then what are we writing about? What are we writing about? You asked me that it was like as consent. Look, I might touch your breast. I'm not gonna touch your breast, <laughs> but I might. <laughs> I might even tweak your nipple. <laughs> uh, please don't do that to me. <laughs> I, um, so you grew up Catholic, and I just love how we went straight to Apocalypse, right? You, you, we grew up Catholic, is that right? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, so we went straight to, uh, straight to Apocalypse. 
And you, uh, you were even, were you, you were even like pretty involved in the Catholic Church, right? I lived in a monastery when I was a, a young man. I was Brother Joseph. Oh and wow! Lived up in Napa. Had a, had a, a, they call them, they don't call them rooms. They call them cells. So you have your own cell. And there I was. was that makes me feel comfortable. Is that yeah. my cell? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, my cell overlooked, you know, gorgeous lakes and, and trees. And uh, you can see the suffering sinners out there in the world. And, you know, the Catholics are not good on this, on the Calvinistic thing about, you know, hatred of the world. It's also about love of the world. Anyway, I, Catholicism has always been a, a, a driver for me from Catholicism basically saved my life, basically gave me a way to think and feel and know about the world, gave me music, gave me art, gave me poetry. And I grew up in a a shotgun apartment in Brooklyn, in Greenpoint, before Greenpoint was Greenpoint. Now, you know- I was in Greenpoint last year. Oh my God, you know, so now it's uh, the real estate, it's like Park Slope again or, or Manhattan. But yeah. now, you know, when I was there, all I remember are the abandoned factories and the air that was so befouled and the, the, the pierogi and the, all the Polish food and the Italian mobsters. And that was my world. And, you know, I didn't, my, none of, nobody in my family graduated from high school. Uh, I was the black sheep because I did pretty well in school. And, you know, there were no books in our house. So I, I had to create uh, my own myth of myself. And the Catholic Church is a really important part of that, really important part. Is it, um, when you say creating the own myth, your own myth, is that like uh, um, trying, to, trying to just gather who you are as a person around, around the, you know, around the dead air, the layer of bad air and green point with... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, that was, that's an interesting way to put it. The, um, I mean, the important, what, what you gain from uh, a religious foundation is you get a sense of, well, first of all, it's the overriding consciousness of your mortality. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Okay. So you're a little kid and all right. And you're an altar boy in my case, and you do a lot of funerals and you get big tips uh, after you do funerals and you hear these eulogies and, you know, you're just steeped in this language. And of course, that is the experience of our life is that we're mortal. And there's no other meaning beyond that. Uh, now, what we do with it afterwards, that's, you know, the afterlife is not my problem uh, or anybody's problem who was alive. But the church gives, uh, the church gave me lots of, uh, as I say, material. There's lots of drama. It's a very dramatic kind of religion, seems to me. And and, it's, and what I love, well, what I adore about it as an outsider, the you know, going to a Catholic church, especially in Europe, oh yeah, just amazing. It's just it, you, when I was a Jehovah, being growing up a Jehovah's Witness, you're not supposed to go into any church. Uh huh. And, and I w- and so the first, the second time I went to Europe, I was newly married. I was still, you know, I was with a Jehovah's Witness. And we were in uh, Paris, and I was like, let's walk into Notre Dame. She's all, <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> That's how ingrained it is. Um, well, I have very vivid memories of, in Greenpoint about the, the JWs walking around the, the streets. And, uh, right. Because they had the, the, the suit and tie. And, 
Yeah. Uh, they were different from the Hasidic types. Uh, I mean, beautiful church. All right, right. So, yeah, we just had technical you, and you were we, so we we lost you on. Um, they were different than the Hasidic types. I think you were going to say they were mostly beautiful. <laughs> no, go ahead. That's right. They were. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you knew that they, they wanted a conversation with you. And here, you know, I'm a little boy and I'm thinking, yeah, it's kind of risky to have a conversation. I mean, I was afraid to walk past the Protestant church around the corner uh, from us. You know, you, you have these primeval, silly fears. That's okay. I don't, that, that, you need, it's good to have fears. Uh, I don't know how we, I mean, it goes into the big question of mortality again. You know, If you're not afraid of dying. I don't know. What, what are you doing? Right. I mean, literature, writing is a, is a stay against mortality. It's creating something up against the, the absolute facticity of, well, you're, you're, you have a timed release. Your body is a timed release capsule. It's going to uh, effectuate at some point. Anyway. And, and how do we get on this subject? Because <laughs> that's where we, we just roll where we roll. Uh, um, the, the thing I think, the thing I, f I feel sometimes, one, being driven as a writer is I just have a, I, I have to, if I'm not in storytelling, I'm losing my mind. And even like, even just, you know, if I'm teaching a workshop or whatever, I just, it just fills my soul on every level. It's, it's my weird new religion. Um, where was I going with this? Because I had a question and I forgot. <laughs> well, you know, and I, my life is split now between my own writing. Uh, I mean, Good Family Fitzgerald's my 16th book. That's a, that's a lot of writing. I don't know how I got there exactly. I don't have a, there's no through line from my childhood to, to this point where I am. But uh, also half of my day, if not more, is spent running or, super, or overseeing the Simpson Literary Project which is, I don't know if you looked that up, but the Simpson it's Project for mid, is, It's for mid-career writers. Well, it's more than that. It's, it, yes, we give a $50,000 50, choice. No, I'm applying next front. year. That's, I, I read about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, need, you need to be a mid-career author. And I, 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 I don't feel mid-career, but I'm way past midlife. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Joyce Carol Oates is you know, uh, our colleague, and we named the prize after her. Daniel Mason's the current winner, but it's about this. When you were talking about the workshop, where you're writing, mm -hmm. uh, teaching, and writing, that's exactly the intersection of the project. It's about the intersection between storytelling and writing. You know, we have uh, we offer workshops uh, for free, uh, places like Girls Inc. or Juvenile Hall, public high schools, and these are taught by Cal University of California Berkeley creative writing graduate students. We do this for free. We put out every year an, an anthology, Simpsonistas, which is which contains all the writers associated with the project coming up volume three. Rare Bird does that. And we uh, and we're into, you know, we're into movie making pretty soon. Oh, really? I'm gonna show, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I'll send you some stuff that we're working on. Oh, cool. Uh, anyway, so it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's an omnibus kind of concept. And uh, we, it's an affiliate, we were affiliated with the University of California, Berkeley English department. They're one of the founding partners. That's where I went to graduate school. Anyway, it's a big, uh, it's a big part of my life. I think it's a big part of the community. 
now. And uh, I think after four years, we've given out $356,000 to oh, wow. writers, students, teachers. Yeah. There we are. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> this is, yeah, we need, we need more information about the Russians, though. <laughs> We're still looking for your emails, Tony. Still looking for um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's it. So when, when did you, as you were growing up, when did you go, wait a second, because you, you were, you know, doing the mythology, uh, as we were talking earlier, uh, when you were young, and the creativity, when did you go, you know what, I, I think I'm a writer? Pretty early. Did you? Oh, yeah. Pre pretty early. I started writing little stories. Uh, and when I got to high school, I, ended, uh, I was in an all-boys Catholic high school. Oh, that's got to be a joy during puberty. When oh, all you want is the scent of a young lady next to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a whole book about that, I think. Uh, <laughs> Which yes, one was that? Which one? Was uh, that it? was probably Confessions of Brother Eli. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, and I, I, I remember this archetypal experience I had. One of the greatest teachers I ever had, we'll call him Brother Paulus. And, and he was an, and I taught for 20 years eighth grade, college, high school. I taught for a long time. He was the greatest teacher I ever had, period. I want to get that really on the record here because I remember one afternoon, I can still visualize it. It was a beautiful day in Berkeley and I gave him some poems to read. And uh, after lunch, he, he says, so uh, we're going to talk about it. He says, what makes you think these are poems? And I felt terrible for him that he didn't understand <laughs> my genius yes <laughs> he couldn't grasp oh my god you oh brother you don't see this it's so sad you don't know this it's funny i ran into him at a funeral not too long ago he's he's a great guy but anyway so writers need you know disappointment that's a good place to start you start with rejection you start with loss. And, and, I, and for me, it's always writing about loss because loss is loss is loss is loss is loss. And we're, I guess we're trying to, trying to fill up that loss everywhere we go. We tell stories to, to uh, make music out of the silence of our own isolation. And that's why I write poetry. It's, I mean, I try to, my, my, my problem, my, my problem, my brand is I don't have a brand. You know, I'm a novelist, I'm a memoirist, I'm a, I'm a poet, uh, I'm an editor. I'm, I, I, I don't know how to describe myself, so I, I don't even try. I just write what I have to write. And when the pandemic hit, for the first time in my life, I started writing short stories. Oh, wow. That was strange. I mean, I always oh. taught short stories. I never was interested in the form, mm -hmm. uh, the, the genre, you might say. And so I but I've been writing these stories. So now I have a book of short stories. What am I going to do with that? I don't know. I'll just, maybe I'll keep writing short stories. Yeah. Short attention span theater. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's funny. I, I just interviewed uh, Art Bell who started Comedy Central and they had oh, a show called Short Attention Span. Uh, I love that part. <laughs> yeah. The, um, well, um, Oh, it was, well, it's interesting because this is what I well, this is what I thought when I was a young when I was a young writer and I, and I said I think I'm a writer and I'd give my stuff to people if they didn't like it yeah exact same thing it was their problem but at the <laughs> same time there was just a beautiful delusion 
Mm -hmm. There was a beautiful delusion that I felt like I was great and I was going to change everything. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, that gets punched out of you after a while, I feel like as a writer, then you kind of get to the reality of what it really is. But I don't think without that delusion of self, I would have been able to really press on even the delusion that when you're writing your first book, you know, you're like, oh, I can't wait to pick up the uh, man Booker prize for this. Um, oh, yeah. Just because yeah. and, and nobody even knows you're writing a book. There's you don't even have a publisher yet. That's me. And I was working tirelessly for so long. And then you're just like, and now this. <laughs> well, and that's a wonderful book you have. I love the movie too. That's, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I love Gabe. I love all that stuff. It was oh, fa- fascinating. Know. It was yeah. fascinating stuff. And um, But when I talk about, if I ever, uh, and I've written about this a little bit, the trajectory, so-called, to use a pretentious word, and I will use a lot of pretentious words before I'm done. Um, but, you know, I, I remember... Like uh, in college, uh, I, I had lots of good teachers who were tremendous uh, creative writers, famous writers. And when I published my first book when I was 24. Wow, book, that's a good, that's fantastic, actually. I was in graduate school at Berkeley. Yeah. And getting my PhD. And that was in the mid 70s. And then the wheels came off uh, for many years. I had a baby. Uh, didn't, you know, I had a fellowship that ran out and I had to get a job. I started working in a restaurant where my brother, rest in peace, was the manager. It was an Italian restaurant. Is um, this in the Bay Area? Yeah, it's in Berkeley and uh, it's not there anymore. Uh-huh. And next thing I know, um, I'm finding myself involved in a blackjack team that uh, led by uh without a doubt, the greatest blackjack player of all time who was affiliated with the people who owned the restaurant. And so I ended up learning how to play cards while I'm sort of supposedly in graduate school and traveled all around the world, lived in Las Vegas, lived in Reno. I've got $35 in my personal banking account and I'm betting thousands of dollars a hand in on, on a, on, in Blackjack, in Vegas, Reno, Tahoe, uh, Monte Carlo, Aruba, South Africa. And I did pretty well. Uh, it's not a great formula for uh, spiritual <laughs> growth, but maybe it is. Maybe it's another way to look at it is that it, it hardens you. It, uh, it disabuses you of, of all kinds of stuff. So my poetry, you know, I, I kind of lost track of my life as a writer. I got very involved in uh, drugs and uh, running restaurants. I ended up running restaurants, uh, starting restaurants. And somehow along the way, there's no straight line. I I taught a long time. I think it it all began to turn when uh, I got a job uh, teaching high school at a great school in San Francisco. I didn't know anything about it. And it, it enabled me to, uh, my son ended up going there. I turned out to be a pretty good teacher. Was a pretty good teacher. So he and I went to high school together. And that was a great turning point. I cleaned up a lot. I got married. Um, there's a lot of drama that, was a, that I talked about in uh, Subway to California and the Pope of Brooklyn. 
And my father was kind of a small time mobster, which is how we got to California because he was on the run. There's a whole story there I can tell you. Um, anyway, so there I am. Um, I'm, I'm become a vice principal of a Catholic high school. At those days, it meant you had a lot of keys on your belt. <laughs> and, but I learned everywhere along the way. I started learning. And then my life sort of changed. And I was able, I was happily married. And I got, I started being on, serving on nonprofit boards. Um uh, which is a whole experience in and of itself. Uh, it's about getting beyond yourself when you're serving. In my case, it was about kids, mental health, the arts, theater. Uh, and I loved all that stuff. And so I, so I went from my first book when I was 24, I published my next book when I was 50. Wow. Now, in between those times, you know, Russell Baker, a great writer said, you know, nobody's life makes any sense, just tell a story. So I've tried to tell two, two, in my two memoirs, I tried to tell this story. Uh, I mean, there, there are moments that, you know, were, were earth shaking. I mean, I was a, a, the subject of a, a federal racketeering investigation. Uh, you know, when an FBI agent calls you and says, you're the prime suspect, don't leave town, have your lawyer talk to me. You don't really want the FBI in your life, they have, their, their resources are effectively infinite. So this went on for at least nine months. And I sort of knew what they were getting at, sort of knew it had to do with the blackjack, sort of knew it had to do with the restaurants, all these lawsuits flying around. And I, and I, I learned a lot about uh, my own illusions about myself, my own delusions about myself. So when I, when I finally did settle down, it was, I was clean again. I wasn't drinking. I felt, okay, uh, now I'm free to write. So when I, these stories that I write, these novels that I write come out of this wacky, strange to me, uh, course in life. And it's always been, I mean, the Catholicism has, has been a through line throughout, still a Catholic. Um, I'm still a teacher and I'm still involved heavily in the community. There I am. I, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, can we just take a break and then uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's great. I just, I love that. Um, there's so much, well, I, I need to read your memoirs because I, I can't wait. Well, the first, first page of the subway to California. Well, there's the image right there. Um, I'm walking down a road in East Islip, uh, Long Island. Uh, and this was before it was all, uh, all the tract homes appeared. My grandparents, my Italian grandparents had a farm there. And uh, that was where we, it's so exotic. You're a kid from Brooklyn, you go to a farm, you got pigs, you got donkeys, you got corn, you have watermelon, you have tomatoes. It's just fantastic. And my Italian identification uh, kicked in big. So walking down the road with my dad and my little brother, and he says, and I, I know I can't say certain words here, uh, but he said, go back to grandma's house and don't take no from anybody. He runs into the woods. I look down the road and the house is surrounded by uh, police cars and other 
vehicles, uh, chariots of uh, law enforcement. They're after him. The FBI wants him. The, uh, the p- local police want him because he's been involved with these dirty cops and he's a bookmaker. And now I didn't know anything about this. It took me a long time to understand, except he ended up in California and we somehow by subterfuge got away. We were tra- tracked for a long time. We got away. He was eventually corralled and taken back. And I find out all this stuff after Subway to California comes out. I stumble upon trial transcripts from the state Supreme Court in New York. There he is at the, the star witness in these trials of dirty cops. He knows this stuff. That's why the FBI wanted him. That's why before internal affairs uh, bureaus were established, these were the, it was called police, something confidential commission or something like that. I wrote, this is a lot of the Pope of Brooklyn because that was his street name, Popey. Wow. Pope. You know, you can't you can't make that stuff up. You know what I mean? Unless and, it's unless you're doing the Pope of Greenwich Village. I don't know if that was made up or. Uh, well, his real name was Pope because wow. I said, I said, Dad, how come they call you Popey and yeah. Pope? And he says, uh, and he told me, well, one time they caught me coming out of a church. Well, the funny thing is, I never, ever associated him with a church. I asked my mother, who is who swore like a truck driver. He, he, she definitely couldn't rest in peace. Couldn't, couldn't be on your show for more than five minutes. She was gorgeous. If you see pictures of somebody in California, my mother was gorgeous. My father was very handsome. They were totally in love and in hate with each other. Total battle, battle royal all the time. My mother says, uh, they call him Popey because he never shuts up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's all fill in the blanks there. <laughs> so, and I, and I saw my father, you know, they both died of Alzheimer's. Uh, I took care of them toward the end. I was uh, the last uh, one left in my family. All my brothers are gone. One brother died of a drug overdose. He was alive, pretty extensively uh, uh, a heroin addict. And other brothers died. It's so I, I was all the, all the only one there to take care of them, which I was happy to do. Not happy. Um, but I remember asking my dad when I was a little kid. Um, I would ask him some kind of question because I was one of those irritating kids who had too many questions, you know. I'd be like you, Tony. And, <laughs> and so I'd ask him a question. He said, it's a, it's a stock answer. And this is actually a good imitation of my impersonation of my father. Just, what are you writing a book? What are you writing a book? Yeah, <laughs> it turns out I was kind of writing a book. I didn't know that, but there I was. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, you know, going back to um, the blackjack years and just world traveling, and you're, I mean, you're in your 20s at this time, right? Yeah, late 20s, yeah. Which is a perfect time to be, like, traveling the world and, you know, seeing everything and having a lot of money in your pocket, I would think. Oh, yeah, it's a lot of – and it's scary. You know, a couple of times, uh, you know, I was pretty good. I could, uh, I could play the game. You know, you uh, don't want to piss people off who run casinos. They're not nice people. And a couple of times I thought, you know, this is not going to work out well for me. And I sort of talked my way out of some difficult conversations. Um, Which was the writer in you. Oh, yeah. Because you knew how to create story. Yeah. You know, you got to get people to believe, oh, no, I'm just lucky. Yeah, You're not lucky. You know what you're doing. 
And at one, uh, at one point, I, I could play on the square. I knew how to count cards. At one point, I was also, uh, we had, this was in there, maybe when I was in my 20s, so late 70s, uh, we had a computer built in our shoes. So, and you could activate the card, you could activate the card values by switches in your toes. Wow. And you could, so it, it was a pretty complicated. I mean, I could still do it right now. It's like, you want you learn how to ride a bike, I can still uh -huh. do it. I'm doing it right now, even as we speak, even though I don't have the shoes on. So you have these big clunky shoes. They were made by, by hand in, uh, in the mission. And these, uh, these cobblers would look at us like, what the hell's going on here? What do you want these shoes? So they put the computer and they had wires all over the place. This is a dangerous thing to do. Walking a computer, walking into a casino with all this stuff. Did yeah. we care? I guess we were ready to take chances. Now, when you, when you take it to Monte Carlo or South Africa, this is a whole other level of, well, exposure. I mean, the weird thing is I had probably my best session ever in South Africa. Just... Uh, and these, these and these shoes tell you, for instance, what to hit, when to stand. But you know this stuff most of the time. But what you didn't know is you you didn't know the exact cards that were left in the deck. But the computer did. So you knew that. I remember once the in Reno, the dealer had you know two tens up twenty, and I had an eighteen, and I knew there was a three in the deck. So I hit it. So I got the three. That was it. That was the end of that conversation. Uh, they didn't like that. Anyway, those are some of the adventures of playing cards. Uh, Paradise Lost. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good comeback to uh, like Dante. Is that Dante's Inferno? Or is it? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, so then, what what is it going from that? You know, because that's high charge lifestyle. That's it's. That's got to, you know, there, there's got to be a lot of, especially, you know, bravado and juice in that because we're taking risks in those years, you know. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Did it mind if my face got smashed up? Now I would fracture a hip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there you are smoking, you know, uh, Cuban cigars. You could still smoke cigars at casinos. You're drinking, you know, vintage Dom Perignon at the table because, you know, you're a high roller. They think you're rolling in it. So. Yeah, and it's a total, here I am, I'm a poet. I wrote a, wrote a little book of poems, University of Missouri published when I was a kid. And here I am doing this, where am I? What am I doing? I still don't know for sure. I guess I wanted to feel everything. I yeah. guess I wanted to struggle over everything. Anyway. What, what was it when you're there and then you cut to, how quick do you become a high school teacher? How, how, what's, what's the, um, how fast do you change your life? How, how does your life shift that quickly? Well, um, I, don't, I don't know if I can explain. I mean, the memoirs would, would, would lay it out in a way. It's a story. I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's real. I, well, let's you know, keep I, it I was under five I was, minutes. <laughs> I was broke. I needed a job. I, right. had, a, I had a PhD. Uh, I didn't want to leave. California, I had opportunities to leave California. I wanted to stay with my son. Uh, his mother and I didn't have a great relationship, and, uh, but, I, but I wanted to be with my son, so I took this job. Uh, that, that's sort of where it began, I guess. Was that, was that a, a, did, uh, 
was your son born when you were doing the cards and stuff? Or yeah, was that yeah, yeah. That was uh, well, that was way before, way before. So, so it was kind of a um, it was kind of a reuniting of sorts when. That's right, and I get into that in, in Subway. It is, you know, I have a lot of residual anxiety, maybe even probably a lot of guilt about the years that you know his mother and I. I didn't have the. She sort of took him away from me. I understand why she might have, um, sort of. Uh, so it was a way for me. I mean, this is a very Catholic kind of thing to clean up your life and to look for absolution. And the only way you get that is by living better, I guess. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very lucky that, uh, to me, I think it's very lucky that the tr- I don't think I ever made a conscious decision that uh, that ever panned out. I, I think I stumbled into things continually. I'm very lucky that I survived the, the years. I mean, I, I knew a lot of people uh, dealing drugs and a lot of people got killed during that time. It was a, it was a rough period. And it could have happened to me just as easily. It was, I was drinking too much. Uh, so there's just always, for me, it's always been this, I, this idealistic thing, uh, idealistic driver in my life. And also this look, this desire for, I don't know, is it adventure? Is it experience? I, 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 when I was in college, for instance, I was very, uh, radical politically, uh, took over the administration building. That kind, of, those days, the anti-war stuff. I was very involved in anti-war stuff. And that's at Berkeley, yeah. This is in upstate New York. Oh, I got okay. to graduate school that was in uh, in Berkeley. Uh-huh. So there, there we were. We took over the administration building, and it's uh, snowing outside. And uh, you know, the insane people are in. There. I was. I'm one of the coordinators of the entire thing, and. Um, so the chancellor comes into his, we're, we've taken over his office. The chancellor comes into the office and says, so you're all expelled. And that's the first one. It never crossed my mind that I would be expelled. Like, okay, what was I thinking? <laughs> what, 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 you know, well, I'm thinking, gee, I'm, um, I'm a pretty damn good student. They can't do anything to me. Pretty stupid. So his yeah. next move, his next move was, he said, how can we both save face? What a brilliant move. Gave us the opportunity. We had to give him something. He had to give us something. And we, he walked out of the office. We all had a, a joint meeting in the, the big chapel, you know, thousands and thousands of kids. Because we were all idealistic. The war was horrible. We wanted it to end. Yeah. We, we didn't want the university complicit in, you know, in, in anything. So what's the lesson here? That... Uh, I've, I don't think I've ever lost the, the, the idealism. I mean, hell, if you're a poet, you're pretty damn idealistic. Uh, and that's always been, I mean, I come from poetry. As a writer, I come from poetry as a human being. And, and who's, uh, so I, I, but at the same time, it's about, I want more experience. I always wanted more experience. I always wanted to take more chances. I love danger. Not anymore. I think I'm yeah, done. I <laughs> there's, there's a point. There's a point where danger's going to the doctor and your cholesterol level. Too high. Oh that, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, that's an image. That's yeah, an image. Thank you. <laughs>
I, I guess my uh, career as a professional hockey player is out the window. Oh, <laughs> my. <laughs> yeah, I do love hoops. That's true. I do love the baskets. So, you know, I'm a Warriors fan like crazy. And everybody hates the Warriors. I know that. But I, was, but, I mean, you're long-time Warriors fan. when you're um, Bay Area. That's so, right. Especially during the dog years. There were decades oh. of dog years. Hey, we had season tickets during the dog years, so I'm yeah. sorry. We They're were about 40 uh, bucks for courtside, I think, I at the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, Chase Center, oh, it's overdone. But yeah, it was, what a great team. So yeah, it's, it's fun to follow the Warriors. My son and I go. My wife and I go. It's uh, still fun to do. It's, it's, they're, they're I hope we can a, do it again. I hope we'll do it again someday. Who knows? Yeah, yeah I know. What, maybe two decades from now, it'll be a, what is basketball? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, there's something about, because, you know, I grew up on the peninsula. Yeah. And Candlestick Park was right there. Yeah. And I remember even in PE, when we were in uh, junior high school, we had to do tests about the Giants. And we had to know them. <laughs> and everything was about, if you got on the honor roll, you can get a ticket to a Giants game, you know. Wow. They, they only cost like three bucks or something. They, know. You know, they throw you in the bleachers, but, but that meant everything. And the giants were terrible. Wow. You know, they were, it was, they, it, it was, was the Johnny LeMaster years, right? I don't, I can't remember. Oh, okay. He was the shortstop. Everybody booed. Yeah. 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 The, the, when you went to a giants game, the booing was for the giants. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lot of it was why, uh, <laughs> what, 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 how blind can you be? And then, and then we got to 2010 when I, I was still living in San Francisco. We, yeah. got to, we got to the World Series and we won it. That was and fantastic. The, and there was such that that was just such a, um, yeah, it blew my mind. I never thought the Giants could win a World Series. That was no. never in my life. And then we're running the streets of the Tenderloin after that, you know, uh, I, I think it was, uh, was, I forgot the, I forgot the whole scenario. I just remember running the streets of the Tenderloin. Everyone's running outside. And then the fire truck comes down and they're, and I'm like, oh, great. They're going to, they're trying to put a shutdown to gridlock on the streets. The fire truck goes, you, they get on the intercom. They go, let's go giant. <laughs> they're like right in the middle of it. It's just yeah. like, that's how much it was just like a relief for all of us. Uh, been through it. Was, it. I, I, I totally relate to everything you said. It was unbelievable that the Giants won. Yeah. But Buster and uh, yeah. Uh, oh come on, what's the name of the pitcher? Left-hander Lincecum. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, the freak. A, the freak. What a great thing. I met when I was a kid. I remember my dad. I have very my my dad. I have a few precious memories. I mean, going to Candlestick Park. Actually, I remember driving from the airport the first when we got to California the first day he was hiding out in the gas station. remember the gas station that used to be inside the airport he was hiding out there so we went there he's we're driving we drive to Berkeley I'm 10 years old right and we passed by Candlestick Park and he's still pissed about the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn and and so am I for the record I'm still yeah. pissed about it yeah. Ebbets Field was down the street down practically yeah. so so we would drive by Candlestick Park, and I remember looking at it. It was so beautiful. It was so strange. California, where the hell are we? This is not Brooklyn. What am I doing here? But anyway, he took me. I remember going to a game and seeing Willie Mays play. Wow. Stan Musial. I mean, Orlando Cepeda. Willie McCovey was fantastic. 
I mean, yeah. so we went to a few. I mean, we, I, he remember, I remember him taking me to the Cow Palace, and I remember Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell playing uh, the same court. It was amazing to see that. Uh, anyway, so I have fond memories of my dad in those areas. Yeah, it's and it's um, you know, it's well, I was. I don't want to get too philosophical here, but no, the whole. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this lately, especially with uh, you know election. Sorry to touch your boobs, but, uh, <laughs> but, the, but uh, it, the the need of a common enemy and how and how much I think how much it brings us together. And this this I guess no this this started for me over a year ago because I was uh, I, I was um, shadowing a director on a set of a TV show of, of a network TV show. Yeah, this comes back to this. And um, and the production was in New York, and the and the crew was in New York, and the talent was in New York, and the writers and showrunner in L.A. And they hated each other for seasons. Hmm. They and it was it was a fight. Everything was a fight. And I was talking to the director on the near the last day and i was like do you feel like that brought you guys closer together because the crew was great and it everyone was just thriving off each other and he's like yeah he's like i kind of think the vibe of that created a better show and made us want to be better than the writer's room and um that's and then i was thinking about that even with sports yeah an enemy for you know growing up in san francisco it's the dodgers oh yeah yeah but when when the dodgers come to town it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if they're feeding the world, they're, they're giving, you know, money to charity. They, they could be the greatest human beings ever. They needed to die when you were at that stadium. <laughs> Tommy Lasorda, yeah. no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but there was a coming together of a common enemy. And then I was thinking about that with religion, where the common enemy is essentially Satan. You know, mm-hmm. now this was my growing up in the in the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's very my <laughs> a very different thing, but it was a coming together. And then now I feel like we've lost a lot of common enemies in the pandemic. We don't get to go to games and you know just be disgusted with uh, whatever team we're against. Hmm. So now, so now politics comes way up there because now, okay, let's where's our common enemy, and then. The common enemy is well, we're, you know, we got a blue tie. Well, we got a red, uh, you know, and and they just it's it's like fractured on such a new level. Help I, me out here because I think well, I'm weird. yeah, no, I, I think I thought you were going a little. I like what you're saying. I, I was going to say well, a couple of things. One is uh, like the Catholic Church is divided, just the way the country is divided between. The, you have the, the right wing and the left wing in the Catholic Church, and they'll, they'll never see eye to eye. And the Pope, the current Pope, Francis, he's, on, he's a little complicated to track. Uh, the previous popes are definitely right wing. He's certainly leaning toward the left wing. And I, and I think this inflames passions uh, throughout the church. And, and the dramas are real. I mean, my... My oldest friend in the world is a is, is a very right wing Catholic. We st- I've been arguing with him since he was ten years old about yeah. this kind of stuff. Uh, so there's what that's thing. Now, the uh, it, I was going to go to writing now because we're I think we're writers. Look, victimhood is boring as hell. Uh, no no victim can be. Uh, an interesting character. 
a victimizer probably can't be an interesting character. It's, there's got to be a struggle. There's got to be conflict to, for, a, for a piece of art, piece of writing to make any, to, to move anybody. And I, and I think we're, in our fractious times, it's too easy to call out victims everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, microaggressions and all that stuff. Uh, we, not that, not that, I mean, we, we have a, a large bill to pay for our racist history. We have a large bill to pay for uh, all the ways that we've abused uh, indigenous peoples and, uh, and the other, other downtrodden, uh, not down, I shouldn't use that expression, the other people who, who've been contested, wh whose value has been contested. Right. So there's a lot of victimization going around and a lot of virtue signaling, which is also boring as hell. Yeah. So Siegel well, it reminds me of growing up a Jehovah's Witness because it's like, no, I'm more yeah. righteous than you. No, I'm more righteous than you. <laughs> I did it this way. No, I went and preached for six hours, but I only counted five hours of my time and I didn't eat lunch. You know, it's, <laughs> you're just going, this makes no sense. And it's dumb. It's dumb. So Sigrid Nunes, a tremendous writer, uh, author of The Friend that won the National Book Award. She was one of our finalists for the JCO Prize. She had a, there was a little piece of The Economist about her. She's hilarious and a very nice person. And she said, yeah, oh, and, and she goes out, oh, these writing programs are producing sensitive males who, who want to write about women menstruating. Okay. <laughs> and she's cracking up about this. Like there's something, there's something wrong about that. Yeah. There's, and and so what are, what are, I've never, never been in a writing program. I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're useful. And I've taken creative writing classes. So I, I'd be interested to you, what you think. I mean, are we indoctrinating writers to certain attitudes? Is that, is, or positions, political or otherwise, or, or aesthetic or otherwise? Well, it's it scares me sometimes because, you know, I, I do, you know, we do have, it's like, we got to acknowledge that people are getting a wrong, the, you know, just the wrong right. hand. Right. But uh, at, at the same time, how much are we going to jump for everyone getting the wrong? You know, it's to, it comes to a point where it's like, wait a second, what is your focus on injustice? Because injustice is everywhere. What 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 are you? What would you? What what are you passionate about? Because if you're if you have equal passion for everything, I kind of don't believe you. Yeah. Uh, but if you have uh, if you got a target on something, I believe you. I was, I teach a free writing workshop at the uh, library yeah, I saw once that. a month and, you know, it used to be in person. And so I go around the room and I, I try to get everyone on a writing exercise. And, uh, and then this was a weird one because this was about a year and a half ago. And, um, and so I said, okay, I was like, tell me the name. I just tried to smash cut. And I'm like, tell me the name of your character. And then uh, if it's male or female for your protagonist, I went around the room. And then uh, as, as I was starting to write the exercise on the board, two women said, can we make it, can we make our character transvestite? And I said, how many transvestites do you know in person? They didn't know any. And I said, then you can't because that's actually really offensive <laughs> yeah. because you're pretending like you know this experience, but all, I, I didn't say this. So I was saying this in my head. I'm like, you're pretending like you know this experience, but you don't. You're not going to write it from any sympathetic way. It's going to be a lie. And it's just, it's such an obvious, dumb move where a real transvestite would be like, why did you write this? Because you don't know my life story. You don't know my angle. And you and it's obvious. Well, this gets into okay. the whole, whole thing. Of, no, no, this is fascinating because, I mean, really, obviously one of the, the, the large 
burning issues, I suppose, in creative writing workshops is co-optation. You know, you're co-opting lives like transvestites or, or black people if you're white or white people if you're black uh, or men if you're women. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a novel from the point of view of a woman, a millennial woman. Right. But, uh, but I, but that, I mean, I feel like, you know, but you know, women, you know, they're, they're in your circle. They're your friends. You have empathy. You're, you, um, you know, if I'm writing a woman character, I do throw my, my, uh, my, I workshop with women because I want them to go, you're out of your mind. This is not how a woman thinks. <laughs> and I go, great. And then, so I readjust it and I publish it and everyone goes, how do you understand the woman's mind? And I just kind of <laughs> smile and I, thank my friends in the background but this you know this was a kind of this felt like an atrocity because they wanted to write about something they just heard about in a news bite anyway uh, that's why that's why i love uh, gabe's cousin in in uh in your, in your book and the movie i love her that was that was a good surprise it's okay but it wasn't a surprise <laughs> i saw that okay good this is wait a, she's gonna do that holy no now she's oh i'm somebody else and here's the van okay yeah <laughs> that was that was beautifully that's a beautiful art oh yeah thanks i i well i love flawed helpers yeah i love them to, to so i wanted i wanted it well i'll just, just sidebar here i wanted his helpers to be crazier than the jehovah's witnesses <laughs> <clears throat> so it, it just it kind of set the balance <laughs> mm -hmm. no i like that well, I think you had, so you grew up with, with real, uh, there were real conflicts internally and externally that gave you a lot to live for and to, yeah. because you need, you need, you need to come up against something. I mean, one of the things about being a teacher, for instance, you know this, uh, uh, you want to be loved as a teacher, but you also want to be, you also want to give something for kids to push up against. Yeah. And, and that means you, you don't want to, I mean, kids see, Adolescence is, is a perpetual state of life. For instance, high school is the great, I think high school is the best teaching up uh, place. It's, uh, we're never out of high school. I don't think we ever leave high school. Yeah. We keep reliving it over and over again. And so, I, I mean, my, my, I mean, I hear from former, I haven't taught for 20 years. I still hear from my former students every few days. They're in touch with me. And, and it's, it's from kids that I, I, you know, I actually had conflict with because they want conflict. And, and you have to be strong enough yeah, because they wear their feelings on their sleeve. And if you're not careful, they, do, they wear them on your sleeve. Yeah. And that's, and that's great. And that's why the stakes are so high when you're teaching kids. I, that's what I love so much. It's almost crazier than a, a, a back end of a card room in South Africa. <laughs> with <laughs> that, You know, you just kind of brought it all around because there is a high stakes when you're teaching adolescents. The Absolutely. stakes are high. Very high, and and you, you teach long enough, and you see kids who are in tremendous distress. And I mean, I know you went through this in, in your life with your friend, uh, where kids their lives are they're hanging in the balance, and you know that. Um, and and it, and it brings out the best in you if you if you got it. Uh, and, and now these days, with with schools where everybody's concerned about, and they should be about abusive relationships between teachers and, and, and students. And there's, a, there's a whole slew of new books about you know, fictionalizations of this and memoirs and everything. This is all good, this is important stuff to think through because teachers have some access. You know, the, the lolitization of kids is really dangerous. Yeah. But here's the thing, education is itself a romantic uh, expedition. 
it's romantic. It's not sexual. It's not erotic. It's romantic. Because what are you doing? You're learning stuff that you didn't know you, you were supposed to know. It's, it's thrilling. So yeah, there are, there are risks here. And no good teacher, uh, every, every good teacher needs to be attentive to that. I mean, kids having crushes on teachers, teachers having crushes on students. That's natural. I mean, it's going to happen. And if you're not in control of that, then you're, then you're, you're putting your kids at risk uh, and you're putting yourself at risk. But anyway, the point is the stakes are so high that makes the good things just tremendous. When yeah. you have those breakthroughs and kids stay connected with you for, for the long haul. It is fun. It's, uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, it's, they, they do student evaluations at, uh, you know, UCLA extensions and stuff. Yeah. And I'm just like, wait, I, I've been open to all you guys. <laughs> you've had all office hours you've wanted. Every one of you has talked to me and I've given you lots of personal advice on your, your story. And there's always that one person that hates my guts somehow. And it's, you know, it's and that's the one you remember. That's the one, that's the one know. evaluation yeah. you remember. I know. Right, right. Oh, yeah, the glowing one. He changed my life. <laughs> Whatever. This one. <laughs> exactly. He yeah. <laughs> he didn't know how to use semicolons right. And oh, like, don't get me started on that one. That's a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why couldn't you tell me that in person so I could throw a piece of chalk at you? I know. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember, remember teaching at Cal when I was a graduate student, uh, you know, composition courses or low-level creative writing courses and you'd get those off-the-wall things and oh he's more interested in his and in, in what he wears than what he teaches you know look for you i still got that guy in my yeah in my sights i will run into him someday and i'll have a conversation yeah, yeah. conflict we're back to conflict again it's healthy it's good yeah, you know, I, I had this what did jesus jesus didn't come to bring peace he came to bring the sword right that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, when I go, you know, that I've had to like disconnect from uh, the, you know, the whole mythology, especially from the point of view of Jehovah's Witnesses. I had to disconnect the biblical thing. But then, and so I used to be very, you know, I used to be like, oh, it's all untrue. Ah, and <laughs> fight against it. And then now I start to come back and go, wait, the philosophy of Jesus is pretty rad. What? Yeah, you know, you just kind of go, okay, there's this, this makes sense. It's too bad a lot of, you know, people who are Christians don't do, <laughs> seem to do what, what his jam was. But Oh, yeah, very complicated character. Um, yeah. So I go, I, I refer to often to in my head to what St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, said, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. There you go. Live it. Live it. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Joseph, so, thank you. so. <laughs> that was such a perfect ending. I, we, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a, it was a trip. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks you you handle it all right, though? I'm all right. Yeah. All right. Joseph DePriesco on Drinks with Tony. Check out his latest book, The Good Family Fitzgerald. Next week on the show, we have the fabulous Iris Berry. Stay safe out there. Keep reading books, recommending books and writing good future books. And I'll see you next Wednesday on Drinks with Tony. Have a great weekend.